1: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, as of the recording of this introduction, we do not yet know who the next president of the United States will be. We do know that the country is deeply divided along partisan lines. We also face disagreements over the boundaries of free speech in a rapidly changing, digitally charged world. In this conversation, author Suzanne Nossel says we must do more to create a reasonable discourse between the differing sides. Nossel is the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. The work offers suggestions for how we can have both an inclusive society and free speech protections. Suzanne Nossel is the CEO of the nonprofit Pen America, an organization that defends and celebrates free expression. Author and journalist Dinao Mingestu interviewed her. This Town Hall Seattle live stream event took place on August 25th. Town Hall Board of Directors Vice President Anita Miras introduced the speakers.
0: As the CEO of Pen America, our nation's leading organization devoted to human rights and free expression, Suzanne Nossel is a leading voice on these issues in the United States and globally. Suzanne held senior State Department positions in the Clinton and Obama administrations, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, foreign policy, and more. She also previously served as the executive director of Amnesty International USA and as Chief Operating Officer at Human Rights Watch. Dinau Mingestu is the author of three novels, each one a, quote, New York Times notable book, quote All Our Names from 2014, 2010's How to Read the Air, and The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears from 2007. A native of Ethiopia who came with his family to the United States at the age of two Mingestu is also a freelance journalist who has reported about life in Darfur, Northern Uganda, and Eastern Congo, in articles appearing in the New York Times, New Yorker, Harper's, Granta, Jane, and Rolling Stone. Suzanne Nossel's first book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, is the subject of tonight's discussion. Please join me in welcoming Suzanne Nossel and Dinal Mingestu.
2: Thank you uh, everyone for joining us and um, thank you Suzanne for having this conversation. It's such a pleasure to actually have a conversation that I feel like we've had the pleasure of doing over email many times um, and to do it really in the context and, and, and in the sort of light of this book, which I think brings um, so many issues that are sort of revolving um, and uh, dominant in our culture right now. Part part of why I think I wanted to also get um, at some of the history that sort of brought you to this moment was I was also thinking of of maybe how we can kind of step back and, um, and sometimes just sort of ask the question, well, how did we arrive at this particular moment we're in right now where, you know, last night at the Republican convention, the speaker comes up and says, well, actually, you know, at the left, we're known as the defenders of free speech. And in fact, we now actually live in a state where somehow that position has been um, sort of usurped or now is somehow no longer seen as actually like a progressive liberal idea. Um, and in fact, it's the conservative movement who embodies these sort of ideals. How did we get to this place where um, even the idea of sort of defending speech might seem somewhat um, heretical to some?
3: Yeah. Look, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, when you think back uh, to the civil rights movement, free speech protections were elemental to that struggle. You know, the right of people to demonstrate out in streets and cities that were hostile. uh, The role of the press and the freedom that the press had to cover the protests. The you know indelible images of dogs and water cans that cadens that were broadcast. On television and on uh, in news in newspaper front pages all over the world were a big part of what enabled that struggle to achieve such progress. And so, you know, the question arises: we're in a new moment of racial reckoning in this country with a rising generation that is driving forward toward the next levels of equality and inclusion and anti-racism here in the US. And you know, in my view, free speech is every bit as essential to those struggles as ever. And yet, I think when we you know ask ourselves, well, why do people not necessarily see that see it that way? I think there are a couple factors. One is sort of the level of struggle that we are uh, engaged with now at this point, uh, which is that we're not focus necessarily on structural barriers, equality in in employment or in education or uh, in access to other kinds of rights. It's sort of a deeper, more profound level of social transformation that is necessary to eradicate the stubborn roots of racism. And I think the role of expression in that is different and pretty fundamental, uh, denigrating speech, demeaning speech, slurs, stereotypes, you know, all have this pervasive effect. And so part of the struggle now is sort of how do you tackle that layer uh, of, you know, racial animus? And, you know, people then you know ask the question, if this speech is protected, you know, if under the Constitution you're allowed to say all of these things, isn't that just contributing to... Barriers to equality. And so I think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece is in the last few years, and it's just so ironic to hear Donald Trump Jr., you know, last night wrapping himself in the mantle of the First Amendment because of everything that this administration has done to uncork hateful speech and let it loose throughout our society. In response to that, we've, you know, seen an understandable. Impulse to protect people from the impact of whether it's anti immigrant sentiment, you know, religious hostility toward Muslims or other groups, uh, racism, misogyny. And so when we have a president who seems to embody and enable uh, all of those noxious sentiments, the impulse to police the realms of society that we can control, whether it's the pages of a magazine or a television show or an op-ed page intensifies, you know, out of a desire to sure to mitigate the, the harm that people see as a result of this speech that now seems to be, you know, uh, freed, unchained from taboos that uh, you know held it back uh, even as recently as five or ten years ago.
2: Yeah i i i I'm curious how so how much would you do you also see it if i'm um understanding what you're saying also maybe also through the lens of power um that the earlier sort of movements in the civil rights movements was very vested obviously in the sort of institutional transformations and in legislation that could dismantle those forces and those and those sort of embedded um yeah i guess sort of power structures and in now perhaps that can we understand speech as actually maybe a uh almost as a sense of like who actually can gain the most control over it, right? Speech and access to speech um, as a kind of almost power struggle happening between sort of two different sides of society, between a generation who rather than looking for structural or institutional change is actually looking for what you noted as being these sort of deeper seated structural transformations in society. Um, And one way that might be seen as being achieved is through kind of controlling the mechanisms of speech itself,
3: no, I think that's true. I mean, we definitely have a power struggle underway over speech and who has the right to speak, who has the right, whether people have the right to control speech of others. You know, in, in in this book, what I'm really trying to set out is how can we put forward a vision for free speech that takes all of this into account and that is fit for purpose in a society that is committed to becoming more ever more equal, inclusive, and anti-racist. I talk about things like the imperative of eliminating barriers to participation in our public discourse, whether that's racial disparities that are persistent in newsrooms all across America, where uh, the rates of progress that journalists and editors have set for themselves have been persistently missed, and we see uh, still a a very white-dominant newsroom, Publishing industry as well, you know. I know you know uh, has been historically very white, both in terms of staffing as well as uh, underrepresentation of minority groups in terms of what books are published. And so, you know, in my view, you don't have free speech when there remain high hurdles to participation uh, for people from you know all kinds of groups and for all sorts of reasons. I mean, translation is another aspect. Uh, that it holds people back from being able to participate in civic discourse if they're writing uh, and communicating in languages that are not widely translated. And so, you know, that is part of, in my view, sort of a more encompassing vision of what it will take to realize free speech in 21st century America and even around the world is is a uh, an approach that addresses those barriers not just a a kind of traditional first amendment approach which is really focused on government infringements on freedom of speech
2: yeah what's interesting in the book is is the approach is actually um you really come down actually at times really to the level of the individual right there's a really strong sense of what the civic responsibility that we as in unique um, sort of you know people can bring to this conversation and how we respond to one another might actually be one of the ways in which we can begin to transform the sort of patterns and structures of speech. Um, You note several times throughout the book that um, in order for that to happen, though, there is a couple of things that need to to be in place. We need to have not only um, time to reflect about the speech that we're not only using, but also receiving And also perhaps even at certain moments, a private space where we can actually reflect and talk amongst one another um, with a kind of openness and honesty that allows for a real transformation of how we see one another. Um, So I'm curious, how do you see us um, getting to those places, especially when it seems like we're in a culture that strives as hard as possible to make those two things impossible to achieve? privacy and time, right, where the reaction and the priority is the immediate response and the public response. So how do we begin to actually pull away from those cultural forces that are um, sort of chewing away at so many bits of of who we are?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do take the view that it is extremely important for us as citizens to play an active role in holding open the space for free speech. You know, if you talk to Americans about free speech, people... Reflexively bring up the First Amendment. You know, that's how we all were taught, and we sort of have looked at this constitutional provision as sort of the uber safeguard. And if, if free speech is infringed upon or you're worried about it, you think about lawyers and courts as the solution. And yet, increasingly, you know, if we're talking about call out culture or can- people being canceled or debates over whether particular tweets or Facebook posts should be allowed on the services or taken down, none of those really implicate the First Amendment. They're not about state action for the most part. And so they have to be navigated between human beings. And I do think, you know, as you mentioned, that face-to-face, and, you know, this has become even harder during the pandemic, but face-to-face conversations so often can help us to navigate what seem to be insurmountable differences and what could lead to a fiery confrontation on Twitter, if you could actually pick up the phone or even better yet, walk down the hall and talk to somebody, whether it's a doormate or a colleague in an academic department or a fellow opinion writer at the New York Times, you may be able to avoid coming to blows. And I think it's extremely important to find opportunities to talk about really difficult issues. I mean, I I actually did this recently on an issue that I know is extremely contentious, but I didn't know that much about it. this issue of transgender women who uh, are in a struggle against what what they deem sort of radical feminists, uh, and it's essentially biological women And they have different views about the significance of biological femininity and whether you should talk about, you know, women who menstruate or rather people who menstruate, Uh, you know, since not everybody who menstruates is necessarily a woman and not every woman menstruates. And so it's sort of about the essentialism of femininity. And it's become a very contentious issue. There are all sorts of disputes on Twitter, the issue that in the context of the Harper's letter that generated so much controversy uh, earlier this summer, that it's the issue that divides Jennifer Finney Boylan, uh, the transgender writer who's a member of Penn's board, from J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. And so I didn't know that much about the issue. And I sort of had an opening with someone I knew who had thought about it. And I just said, can we get on the phone? I'd like to hear what you have to say. And I want to be educated. And I want to ask some questions that I probably wouldn't feel comfortable asking in a more public setting, just to get my arms around this set of issues. And I feel like that, you know, creating space for those types of conversations is really essential. People, I think, actually, when you, uh, you know, approach it in the right way, are quite open to it and enjoy it as well, because we all are, so often, kind of locked in this public discourse on social media and on op ed pages where we have to be extremely careful about what we say and where it's even hard to ask questions because if you ask the wrong question, you know, you may be seen as, uh, you know, on the other side of a uh, particular popularly held viewpoint. You know, and we saw this on, you know, the whole debate about uh, defunding the police. There were moments where, you know, even asking questions about what that meant or calling into question what the implications of what would be for communities, you know, could render you persona non grata in certain circles. And, you know, to me that's inimical, not just to free speech, but to the deliberative process that we need as a society.
2: Yeah. So, so how do you then think, how do we begin to, or do we need to begin to distinguish between um you know, those sort of like, you know, sometimes it seems that there might be sort of cultural sort of shifts and pressure sort of happening. Right. Um, and the, and the way the sort of limits and sort of that's that private space is being reduced, if not kind of annihilated, where, um, the way in which we might be able to communicate in smaller groups isn't, isn't somehow tolerated or, is, or there's less room to even accommodate that. Um, how that cultural shift then also begins to affect the way, um, the way discourse begins to actually sort of perform publicly, right? So how do we, how do we create those private spaces, I guess is what I'm trying to, trying to sort of get to, you know, once upon a time, I think we would have looked at colleges um, as, as one of those spaces where perhaps these conversations could happen in a smaller environment, but even that space is no longer necessarily, um, you know, amenable to that. Even that space is sort of about the kind of public um, performance to a certain degree. So do you see a way in which the culture Um, can perhaps begin to kind of shift enough to allow for um, some of those private conversations to occur?
3: I mean, I think it's a good question. You know, one, I worry a lot. It's funny because there's been so much debate over uh, these controversies surrounding campus free speech, whether it's deplatforming of invited speakers or professors who say something in class that students find to be offensive, and then they call for that professor to be disciplined in some way and and sometimes achieve that result. Uh, So there are all these conflagrations that have taken place and we've documented them, many of them uh, as Pan America, white supremacists try to come to campuses to rile people up. And yet I think uh, the greatest threat to campus free speech I feel right now is the fact that the campuses have had to shut down due to COVID. And so You know, all of those dining hall conversations and late night dorm room conversations and give and take in seminar rooms, you know, has essentially disappeared. And I think people worry. I do think it's good uh, for universities to adopt, if they can, prohibitions on taking video of lectures and classes, because I think that's inhibiting for both professors and for students. If you have to worry, you know, not I think there's a higher hurdle to taking part in conversation on a Zoom because you don't have the cues and the body language. I don't know if these 44 people you know, here in our audience are bored out of their minds. Are they looking at the phones? Are they nodding eagerly? Uh, you know, are they excited about this? I have no idea neither do you. And so we kind of soldier on in ignorance about that. Whereas you know, if we were in at Seattle town hall, it would be very different and we could get a feeling of what reaction we were eliciting. And so for students in the classroom, You know, I think that can be very intimidating. You don't see that others are furrowing their brows at the same time and wondering the same thing that you are. And so I think we have to bend over backwards, particularly uh, amid the virus, to elicit these conversations. And I think for each of us, you know, in our daily life, whether it's around the family dinner table or with a friend or over dinner, you know, finding ways to have the difficult conversations. And I have a chapter about how to do that in my book. Because I think for a lot of us, it sort of seems harder than ever and often kind of not worth it. Like, is it really worth, you know, uh, potentially ticking off, you know, Uncle Mike uh, by bringing up what you think about Black Lives Matter if you don't think he's supportive? But we actually need to create discourse across our differences. We're in an extremely polarized moment as a country. And we have to find ways to talk about these things. And as at, at America, we've also done work. In communities across the country, we've created chapters in six U.S. cities, and part of the goal really is to foster this discourse across difference and be an engine for civic dialogue in some of the communities where we think it's, it's most needed.
2: Yeah, what, what, what it's interesting in the book because there are you you take actually very prescriptive sort of approaches, right? So it's not just about noting the problem, but actually trying to offer really practical kind of solutions like, how an individual can go about having a difficult conversation, how an individual can be aware of language that might be contentious, or or how we can go about making sure that we avoid um, character ruptures in, in in our sort of speech. And um, one of the interesting things there is that sense that this actually requires work. Um, that there's a sort of effort that needs to be put into place in order for these things to actually happen. Right. And makes me think what you had noted earlier about our traditional reliance upon just the first amendment as a generic kind of coverall to ensure we all had speech. And now we're at, um, you know, an inflection point uh, where it's no longer just about turning to the first amendment, but in fact, doing more, sort of tangible, practical, sometimes seemingly mundane, and oftentimes very ordinary and yet nonetheless necessary work. Um, and how do we begin to sort of actually imprint upon people the urgency of that task, that um, it's not just about getting along with our Uncle Mike at the dinner table, but that in fact, um, and I think it's one of the things that undergirds the book, that in fact, you know, our sort of democracy and our, and our citizenship is at stake here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in a weird way, I mean, I sort of had mixed feelings about uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s comments last night about free speech, claiming that free speech is exclusively Republican value and that on the left, the preoccupation with call outs and cancellations, uh, you know, has run amok and reflects a kind of uh, deepening censoriousness because At some level, look, I think it's incredibly hypocritical because the Trump administration has been no friend to free speech. And, you know, in fact, in America, we're suing Trump for his threats and acts of retaliation against journalists and the media. We've just been involved in two lawsuits concerning books that he was trying to prevent from being published. You know, uh, he's denigrated reporters as enemies of the American people. So he has absolutely no standing and nobody associated with his administration has any standing uh, to complain about this. But the substance of the concern that uh, Trump Jr. raised, I think is a legitimate one. I do think we face a kind of climate of censoriousness on the left. I think the reasons for it are understandable <laughs> and even no, you know, perhaps noble in that I think it is born of this desire to bring about a more equal and inclusive society. But I think the remedy that people have come upon is the wrong one when it it, it translates into prohibitions and punishments for speech. And so that's why I I think we have to kind of reinvent free speech for, you know, what I call our, our diverse, digitized, and divided society. And I think particularly the diversity the question of sort of how we live together in a society that, you know, we're very close to sort of a tipping point where we'll have no single-majority uh, ethnic group, and it's, it's, it's quite exciting. I mean, if you watched, I don't, you know, I'm sort of giving away my political colors, but watching the DNC last week, you know, seeing that diversity of faces as they do the roll call across the United States, I thought was pretty inspiring. And yet it shouldn't come as a surprise that, you know, as we adapt to living in a society where people from all kinds of backgrounds, you know, are not just here, and they're not also just simply being assimilated and asked to regularize and normalize to a traditional, you know, heteronormative, white dominant pattern of living, but rather being sort of invited and welcome to live as they choose. That's going to require some adjustments. And it's going to be, it requires some adjustments to how we exercise our free speech rights. And it doesn't mean that you, I believe fervently, it doesn't mean that you should refrain from articulating opinions and viewpoints just because they may be controversial or unorthodox or not well received in certain quarters. I think it's extremely important to say them anyway. But what I try to offer in the book is, you know, here are some ways of doing that, that are going to hopefully make it more likely that you'll be heard, understood, maybe you'll even persuade some people to uh, come around to your side of the issue. And you'll also avoid inadvertently offending, uh, alienating, and uh, you know losing a, a portion of your audience because of offenses uh, or misstatements or just errant speech that was avoidable and would have been avoidable if you had just exercised a little more care. And so I think this is kind of baked into you know, how we're going to have to live together as a society. And it is going to take a little more forethought on effort and effort on each of our parts to, uh, you know, say what we want to say in a way that is, is calibrated to be heard.
2: Yeah. So th- th- there's so much there, um, which I have some almost a two part question. Um, you know, one, as you note, as our society gets increasingly diverse and more perspectives um, become part of the conversation, inevitably, we're going to have more divergent viewpoints, especially on what um, words and what certain statements and phrases might mean. Um, there's a line in the book which says we evaluate speech through our own distinct ideological lens, and of course, those ideological lenses are growing more and more complicated and numerous. Um, so, how do we begin to sort of address somebody who says, "Well, you know, it's not even just an ideological lens, but it's an experience, and from my experience, these particular set of words aren't actually." Um, you know problematic so much as they're actually just explicitly hateful like I hear that and what I'm actually hearing isn't a different viewpoint but I'm actually hearing hate speech I'm hearing something that's sort of attacking my identity um, how do we begin to sort of navigate what somebody's experience tells them and informs the way they interpret it versus the person who might be speaking in their intent um, and then maybe as a Second part, how do we manage being more reflective in our conversations and in our speech without um, falling into the trap of self-censorship? How do we straddle that gray line between being thoughtful but also not inadvertently censoring ourselves? Um, or are we censoring ourselves by being thoughtful?
3: Yeah, no, they're great questions. Look, on the first one, I think there you know, uh, are certain norms of speech or slurs in particular where it feels really difficult to imagine that anybody living in 21st century United States, you know, wouldn't understand that a particular reference, you know, whether it's about Jews or about blacks or about Asian Americans would be considered offensive. And I, you know, I, I, in the book, uh, talk about the responsibility of conscientiousness and a duty of care. To be cognizant of those things, I think you know the duty of care. To my mind, increases depending on what platform you have. So if you're talking, you know, if it's your grandfather and he asks at the dinner table, you know, he's not on Twitter, he maybe doesn't watch that much television, and he says, "What's wrong with saying all lives matter?" You know, I think it might be appropriate to simply explain to him, you know, how that phrase is understood and contextualize it, uh, but not to get upset. Whereas if it's a professor in front of a classroom, I think it's fair to have a very different reaction because that phrase is not new and it's been well and thoroughly debated and and, uh, widely explained why it's considered uh, sort of insulting to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think you can expect somebody who has a platform, particularly uh, engaged with younger people uh, and a large audience to have picked up on that and to have gotten the memo about that not being a phrase that you would use. But there are gray areas. I mean, one of the, the the gray areas that I find sort of you know most illustrative of how difficult it is to really try to draw any hard and fast lines when it comes to hateful speech and why I think it's ultimately a good thing that the First Amendment in the United States doesn't allow our government to do that. You know, in Europe and Canada and Australia, they ban, they can ban and punish uh, incitement to discrimination and incitement to hatred, where we have a, a much higher, more protective standard for speech, which is that we can only ban incitement to imminent violence. So only if somebody is really urging imminent violence can the government step in. And I think that's ultimately a better approach because of these these gray areas. And the example I was going to bring up is Israel-Palestine, which is a very contentious issue on so many college campuses. And you really hear you know, almost these mirror image arguments, I mean, whether you buy them or not, and how you, you know, look through the lens of power, may be different for each person. But you hear Palestinian students saying that for, you know, a representative of the Israeli army to come and speak on campus is uh, undermines their sense of safety and security and humanity. And, you know, on the flip side, you hear Jewish students arguing that having a, you know, representative of, Uh, A Palestinian rights organization who argues for the eradication of Israel, you know, undercuts this person's sense of uh, self and their, uh, you know, their role in history, their family identity, and they both may be very heartfelt in expressing that point of view. And, you know, whether it's credible or not, I think it illustrates that that subjective feeling of being undercut, if we let that trump. Uh, and and become the new standard for speech that we're going to allow the government to prohibit you know could point in a lot of different directions and take all subject matters off the table for discussion and subjects that i think we need to be able to talk about
2: yeah well what are the things you is that um you know we do sort of encounter difficult speech and i think this might even touch on some of the questions being raised is that it's we should try to refrain from necessarily searching for the authorities or searching for you know institutions actually be the mechanisms through which um that problematic speech is addressed and how and instead trying to respond um to it from a more sort of individual or even sort of civic-minded way that we don't need to necessarily turn to the government to sort of censor it but in fact Um, we should, uh, I'm sorry, I'm actually inverting the argument. The argument being, rather than having individuals be the ones who actually try and censor um, that we should actually use the authority, right? Because actually in our country, we do have a a sort of a very broad discretion with the First Amendment rights. Um, And that is when we rely on individuals to actually become, um, you know, that power, that's when we actually end up in these sort of really problematic areas because individuals might sort of censor based on their own particular experiences or their own emotions. Um, so my question, I guess, then is, is then what, how do we allow the authority to become or how do we trust authorities to sort of be responsible to, to, towards addressing those more problematic forms of speech when some people would argue that they have no trust in the authority as it stands, that in fact the very authority is the thing that they're arguing against, so how can they turn to the authority, um, whether it's the police or the state or, or Congress, to actually serve as a check on speech that actually crosses those thresholds.
3: Yeah. Well, look, I don't think that we should turn to governmental authorities any more than we already do as arbiters of speech. I think our system, which really delimits quite narrowly the role of governmental authorities in banning and punishing speech uh, in discerning between different viewpoints as the basis for rules that govern speech, you know, the authority and the leeway is very limited. I think, you know, for those who, you know, there's been this sort of clamor and, and question in recent years about whether we should broaden that authority and whether the, the First Amendment is too protective of particular kinds of speech and, and, and especially hateful speech and whether we should allow for broader prohibitions. For example, hateful speech on college campuses. Should we allow for speech codes that would prohibit noxious speech. And, you know, I think the risk comes in in, in in what you brought up, which is you have to think hard about who's going to be implementing these rules. I mean, right now, you know, we know that if Donald Trump wasn't confined by the First Amendment, that he, you know, very well probably would have sent out troops to quell peaceful protests in American streets back in May and June. You know, he, he was uh, absolutely explicit in his desire to do so. He also would withhold White House press passes to punish journalists whose reporting and questioning he disagrees with. And so he's made very plain how he would abuse these powers if they vested with them. And it's only because we have the First Amendment and the courts and you know also our other institutions of government and sort of a, a societal appreciation of the constraints on the power of even the, the president to impinge upon free speech that he has you know, had to restrain himself. And so I think he's a very good illustration of the risk. You know, people, when they imagine these mythical laws uh, protecting against hateful speech, I think they envision you know, some combination of Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and maybe Barack Obama, who would collectively have the wisdom to decide where to draw these lines and what precisely constitutes hateful speech and how to deal with speech about Israel-Palestine and a whole host of other contentious issues. But in fact, that's not who would decide. Who would decide is our elected officials at any given moment uh, and our appointed judges, and that's a much more mixed bag. And I think we ought to be leery of giving them that unfettered authority You know, I feel the same way about Facebook and Twitter, you know, because they have their own motives. They are profit-making companies. Their business models are predicated on privileging the most incendiary and outrageous speech that delivers the most engagement. And so they're they're not actors necessarily in the public interest. I think while they do have to play, and they will play, I think we will see them playing a larger role in policing speech. I think we need to be leery about how they do it and ensure that there's transparency and that we can understand what speech is disappearing and that we have recourse for those who believe that their free speech rights have been infringed.
2: Yeah. Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to um, make sure we get our audience questions in. Um, So I wanted to start with a question from uh, Elizabeth Coppinger of New York. Um, And she's asking, how can we protect our society from hate speech and disinformation. Rwanda is a clear case of the danger of that type of unfettered speech, especially when we see that individuals will believe what they want to believe.
3: You know, it's difficult. It's nice to hear from you, Elizabeth. someone I haven't seen uh, in a long time. So it's great to uh, hear your, your, your name and I wish I could see your face. You know, at PEN America, I I deal in the book with how I think we can fight against hateful speech. And, you know, the best method is ultimately counter speech and condemnation and rejection and the reinforcement of taboos. I also talk about education and dialogue. And, you know, there are instances where white supremacists have recanted and been brought around through engagement with their political opponents. Sometimes their family members are involved so there are ways of addressing them. But what I will say, and I think one of the most difficult sort of parts of this argument to confess to is that I'm not sure any of those methods is really fully adequate, especially over the last few years where we've had this environment of hateful speech being enabled from the highest levels of government. But I ultimately, for the reasons I spoke about a moment ago, think we're better off doubling down on these sorts of approaches than we are in authorizing our government to clamp down on its definition of hateful speech you know, when it comes to disinformation, we've done a lot of work on that issue at, at America. And it's really interesting. We started after the 2016 election and did a whole study of kind of fraudulent news as a threat to free expression, even though overwhelmingly fake news and uh, misleading uh, mis- misinformation is protected by the First Amendment. You know, it's not illegal to lie or dissemble, and yet we for a whole host of reasons identify that it was inimical to free expression and open discourse. Because if you have a, a public conversation that is so polluted by falsehoods that no one knows what to believe, it really undercuts the value of free speech. You know, when it comes to the role of free speech as a catalyst for finding the truth or for discerning between Truth and falsehood for allowing the best ideas to come to the foreground. All of that is thwarted in an information environment that is flooded with propaganda and disinformation. You know, we ultimately concluded the best way to approach it is sort of defensively by equipping people to be much more sophisticated in terms of how they absorb information and understand where it comes from. You know, we've lost so many of the indicators of that. Uh, You know, it used to be, you know, a book with a spine and a publisher and there's an editor and, you know, there are all sorts of gating factors that would tell you whether something was credible and worth reading. And on on social media, so many of those are lost or diminished. We've actually been doing trainings all across the country about election-related disinformation and also following... Some interesting steps that the social media platforms have taken in relation to COVID disinformation, which have been pretty effective in terms of suppressing quackery and conspiracy theories that people are trying to share on the platforms and at the same time elevating credible sources of information from the CDC and the WHO. And you know, now the, the complicated question is whether and how that should and will translate to the political arena where The line drawing exercises, I think, are even more complicated and problematic than they are when it comes to the science.
2: Um, There's um, another question that, you know, I know it's it's referenced in the book and um, ties deeply to the work Pan America has done on on campus free speech. Um, The question um, is, can you talk about the suppression of free speech on college campuses um, like Middlebury?
3: Yeah, sure. We did all... Sort of case study looking at Middlebury. There was an incident, uh, you know, about I think about four or five years ago, where Charles Murray, the author who had become notorious after publishing a book uh, decades ago called *The Bell Curve*, which essentially explored a, a, a racially driven uh, argument about intelligence that many people uh, believe was racist. He was invited to come to campus by a group of college Republicans and. Uh, The idea was he would have a conversation with a political science professor and the protests against his appearance were so vociferous that he was in effect shouted down. He ended up delivering his lecture from a a closet uh, and broadcasting it, I think, over the radio. And then when he and the professor uh, came downstairs and outside, they were thronged by a mob and really kind of physically attacked. And the professor, Alison Stanger, suffered lasting injuries as a result and it was a pretty traumatic incident for the campus we actually ended up doing a two-day workshop at Middlebury talking about it and some of the things that came to the foreground were you know Middlebury is an extremely white campus extremely I think the whitest state of the union and so for students of color on that campus uh were a pretty small group I think the ability to tolerate you know, anything that seemed to further undercut uh, their position and their sense of belonging on campus was difficult to tolerate uh, because of that environment. Another piece of it was that the university president had a practice whereby for any lecturer who would come to campus, she would deliver an introduction. And she did, she was to do that, was to have done that, I think did it for Charles Murray. And so that put Essentially the imprimatur of the university on you know this this lecture. And so rather than simply being the decision of the college Republicans who are empowered to invite who they choose, you know, it suddenly became something that had sort of the seal of approval from the college. Uh, or at least that's the way that it was perceived. And so, you know, in our report and analysis of this, we draw a number of conclusions. I'd say just briefly, you know, that. We much very much favor a system whereby universities have a decentralized approach to who can invite whom to campus. Uh, we think that allows for a whole range of ideas to be explored by students. People can follow their flights of fancy. they can hear from whom they want. It could be you know a medievalist, it could be a politician. Uh, and that's great and that the university should be very leery of stepping in to reverse those decisions or to cancel a planned speech when a lecturer has been duly invited. I think it's a very different matter when the university is doing the inviting themselves and that there it's much more appropriate to apply kind of screen of the university's value system and to think hard about who you're conferring in a distinguished lectureship, uh, who's getting an honorary degree, and you know, this question of the seal of approval from the university at large.
2: Um there's, there's two questions that I think sort of um, go hand in hand um, and that I think touch on on things that are sort of brought up in the book, really, that go back to about individual responsibility and behaviors and, and the roles we play as as sort of citizens and, um, and kind of active listeners and speakers. And the first question is about um, what do you think about the anti-racist sentiment that members of the dominant culture need? that members of the dominant culture need to educate themselves rather than seek education. And the second question of um, sharing some examples of how we can exercise more care in talking to someone who we disagree with on topics.
3: Sure. I mean, on the first one, yes. I mean, this is something that uh, has come up a lot in our campus speech work, you know, the typical scenario, you know, can be, A professor, you know, there have been many instances like this uh, where they use the N-word in class and they're doing it as part of it could be a white professor could be uh, literature class and they're, you know, looking at the work of James Baldwin or Mark Twain or maybe it's a a lecture on law and the doctrine of fighting words and they use the N-word to illustrate language that can elicit a Fiery and vehement response, and you know maybe they've been doing this for years, but you know to their mind, all of a sudden the students uh, get up in arms and get uh, protest the use of the word, the fact that the professor has said it out loud, ask for the professor to be disciplined. I mean, there's a case at Princeton where a whole course on hateful speech ended up being canceled uh, in the wake of an incident like that, and you know, what does come up is this notion somehow that that professors don't understand how a rising generation perceives that term and want to be educated. And the fact that for students, whether it's about the N-word or other uh, so-called microaggressions, so fleeting uh, use of stereotypes or denigrating references, uh, you know, something like talking, you know, call a standard one is, you know, remarking sort of uh, with emphasis about how articulate, you know, a person from a minority group is, you know, with the implication being that that was somehow a surprise and you wouldn't expect them to be quite so well spoken. And so the idea that minority, individuals from minority groups are constantly being asked to gently and kind of in an understanding vein educate white people about how different types of speech are received and how mores are changing and you know the experience they've had you know hearing a stereotype voiced over and over again so that you might think it's perfectly innocent in this instance and yet they've heard the same trope their whole life so they uh you know see it in a different vein and that this is a form of kind of unpaid labor you know that people are being asked to carry out, and I think it's fair to say that white people need to take it upon themselves to read and uh, research and think about the language that they're using. And you know, we have this issue now with our communications at PEN America because, like every other organization, we've become you know ever more sensitive of these issues. And so, you know, who do we turn to to look over? you know, the letter or the report sort of through the lens of how might it be received by the different groups and audiences that will read it. And we sometimes find the problem, you know, you sort of want to go back again and again to the same people because they have that perspective. And yet, you know, uh, in so doing, you're asking them to take on all this extra work that isn't quite fair. And I think you have to find ways to acknowledge that and compensate for it because it, it's real. And it, you know, in some instances, there's no substitute. Yeah, you, know, you really do, you know, we had our statement on George, George Floyd. I wanted to make sure that a number of Black people had read it before we put it out. It felt essential. And yet, you know, uh, it was one among several statements during that time period. So I think it's a valid concern.
2: Um,
3: the other... The other concern is uh, of taking care and talking to someone who disagrees with you on a topic from the get-go. Yeah, I mean here, I think part of it is tone and you know how you begin such a conversation and doing so with you know a calm attitude of respect and trying to avoid uh, trying to hash things out in the heat of a, the moment when a controversial you know, uh, instance or outbreak has come up, but rather sort of trying to look for a quiet moment to do it. I think it's thinking through the counter arguments to whatever it is you're going to put forward, you know, trying to anticipate, but what are they going to be able to accept from what I'm saying? What are they going to reject? What are they going to bring up? How does this perspective mesh with their life experience? Uh, having facts and figures and research so that you are grounded, in the perspective that you're putting forward. And it's not just based on uh, a set of assumptions, uh, but actually doing your homework so that you're ready for the conversation, trying to disarm some of the, you know, I give an example in the book about a, an article about a controversial topic, the role of the kind of the Israel lobby in Washington. And very often when people bring that up, they're accused of being anti-Semitic. And so there's a, this article by the journalist Andrew Sullivan that I actually thought was very well done because he went to pains in the beginning of setting out his argument to explain, you know, his recognition of Jewish history and essentially to disabuse his readers of any concern that he was coming at this, you know, driven by anti-Semitic, or infected by anti-Semitic animus. And I thought it was convincing and that once he managed to put that aside, you you could really engage with his arguments about, The role of the Israel lobby, you know, much more on their merits.
2: Um, And there's there's one more question that that I I want to make sure that I'm understanding um, correctly because I do think there's there's a hard point that's being um, sort of suggested here, which is to um, to try to explain why offending others is a higher um, value than free speech. Um, To think about blasphemy and. Um, the way America responded to the Charlie Hebdo murders through self-censorship um, rather than holding on to our values of free speech?
3: I mean, I think I kind of get it because maybe because I, you
2: know, <laughs> I
3: think about these issues a lot, but I think, yeah. I think the first thing is, is whether the, the goal of avoiding effects should trump or override the commitment to free speech. And I think you know that is what uh, many people are arguing in many settings that if something's going to offend or hurt someone, that that should be grounds to ban or punish it, or at the very least for the individual who contemplates expressing those views to self-censor, to just, uh, you know, uh, put it, put a cork in it and uh, keep it to themselves. And I think that is a, you know, I, I, I would say this. I think that in order to live together in this diverse society, we need to be cognizant of one another. We need to know what the red lines are, what may offend, and we need to be judicious. And that, you know, so many of the offenses that occur in our daily discourse are, I think, not intentional. They're uh, they're they're inadvertent, and they you know grow from you know a certain. People who are used to operating in a certain milieu, you know, in the 1950s, you could probably publish, uh, you know, a letter to the editor and be pretty sure that just about everybody reading it in your local paper would come, you know, be the same race as you, come from the same educational background, maybe have the same religious orientation. And now if you're publishing something on social media and in many of our news outlets, that's no longer the case. You're going to a much more diverse audience. It could be a global audience. And so that does, to me, require a greater cognizance in order to uh, avoid unintentional offense. You know, when it comes to expressing views that are considered, you know, where you're making an argument, whether it's about gender differences or racial differences, and maybe it is something that many people would consider deeply offensive, but maybe it's a, a view that you hold, and maybe it has some basis to it. And I talk about, you know, some of the really fraught areas of science that, you know, there there are scientists who have had difficulty exploring and talking about, for example, racial differences in medicine because it so easily seems to sort of bleed into, uh, you know, straight out racism. And they've found some really careful, thoughtful, Ways of doing it, and they've also made the point that looking into some of these issues, you know, is actually very important from a public health perspective. You know, these are, uh, you know, conditions or proclivities that do vary across the population. It may not be race; it may be other kinds of determinants that are really at stake. But if we take it all off limits because we're so afraid of offending somebody, you know, it could be it, it could lead to less effective treatments, and so. I think it's extremely important to find ways to talk about these things, uh, but that, you know, very often we can at at, at the least minimize, if not eliminate, offense.
2: Um, So I think we have time for just one last question, um, which I think I'm going to try to use as a moment to try to summarize everything that's been kind of said here, which is that, you know, we need, if if I think one of the book's strongest points is that, you know, we need to have these... um, almost sort of a cultural sort of shift in the way we approach and communicate and listen to one another. And you noted this early on that there are these changes that we need to kind of begin to enact now that require us not necessarily, not definitely not to censor and not to sort of change legislation, um, but to just reconsider the way we approach and think um, one another and the way we um, listen, the way we, um, you know, consider each other. Um, so I guess I, am I'm curious, are you, are you hopeful that we are, um, that we have the tools to actually do that, that we actually live in a moment that makes that um, shift possible? Um, or do you see us in a moment where, um, we're actually bending the other way?
3: I mean, I think this is a tough moment to be honest, because, uh, you know, of all the factors that i talked about, um, I ultimately am hopeful. I think the fact that the rising generation of young people is so committed to driving forward a more equal and inclusive society is ultimately going to be a boon for free speech, because I think some of these barriers to participation in public discourse are being brought down. And we see that happening now with moves to diversify, whether it's the publishing industry or journalism. And I think for young people, that's going to be an even more obvious Imperative at every step. You know, the question is, will young people feel a commensurate commitment to the ideals of free speech? I think that's you know, right now, much more of a question. That's really one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. is Is, is because I think it's so important that as they drive forward a, a agenda of social justice uh, and, and try to invent a more equal and inclusive society that free speech not be lost in the front shuffle and i think you know we saw last night one of the reasons for that it becomes quickly politicized it becomes a weapon that is used to fight back against these drives for a more progressive society is that they're coming at the expense of free speech and so i think that's a, a an unfortunate byproduct i also ultimately genuinely believe that To realize a progressive society requires being able to have open debate about what the best policies are, about what the consequences are of different approaches to social justice, uh, to social policy, that we need to be able to hash all of that out. And we can't take these topics uh, off limits in terms of our discussion. So, you know, my hope is to kindle in this rising generation an appreciation of how the values of free speech are not just... Compatible with their goals, but essential to their
2: attainment. Um, I think that uh, just puts us just about out of time. Um, thank you so much, Suzanne, for that conversation. Um, if you haven't had a chance to read Suzanne's book, Dare to Speak, read it, pass it to your friends, and, and make our world a little better.
1: This Town Hall Seattle live stream event featured Suzanne Nossel, author of Dare to Speak Defending Free Speech for All. She was interviewed by author and journalist Dinao Mingestu. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.